know one in five Americans live with a mental health problem? <laughs> that means unless you live in a cave, you know someone personally dealing with these issues. So join us and our special guests as we answer your questions, share real stories, and work to pull the curtain back on how stigma impacts our everyday lives and our communities. We believe that making a real impact happens best with candid conversations, laughter, and tears. We are your hosts, Jennifer Ritter and Josh Moore, and this is Impact Stigma. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another fun and informative episode for, for our fourth season of Impact Stigma. I can't believe it. Our special guest is the Executive Vice Provost at East Tennessee State University, and he is a professor of community and behavioral health at the ETSU College of Public Health. He is co-director of ETSU Addiction Science Center, director of the ETSU NORC Rural Health Equity Research Center, and co-director of the Opioids Research Consortium of Central Appalachia serves as chairman of the board of directors for um, nonprofit opioid treatment program over mountain recovery he's on the board of directors for one tennessee health on appalachian regional commission substance abuse advisory council he does a lot of things you guys and he has served as technical expert for the office of national drug control policy in 2019 he also chaired the association of Schools and Programs in Public Health Task Force on Public Health Approaches to the Use of Future Opioid Settlement Resources. He is a member of Class 8 of the Leadership of Tennessee. Please welcome Dr. Robert Pack to Impact Stigma. Hey, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you. Yeah. yeah. So one thing we like to do is ask a couple fun questions in yeah. the beginning. You're All the right, best. so let's pretend we're going out. We're grabbing a sub. What's Dr. Pack getting? Turkey, bacon, avocado. Is nice. that it? So if we're going to Subway... Uh, yeah, that's where that's what I would get, and I get some uh, uh, some vinaigrette on there. There you go, extra nice. extra salt and pepper because I just like salt and pepper. There you go. Sounds tasty. How about you, Josh? Uh, mine's meat and cheese only, so it's the a big Italian, yeah, pepper jack cheese, a ton of mustard, and just Parmesan cheese. Mm. I haven't had one in a really long time, but I like the spicy Italian with mm-hmm. all the stuff, with every mm-hmm. vegetable they have and all the stuff. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, for sure. Or two. Yeah, spicy Italian. Yeah. Okay. All right. So if you could be any animal, what would you be and why? <laughs> it's, gonna sound, it's a little grandiose, but uh, eagle. Oh, I uh, love those. Yeah, I love, I love uh, kind of the range. Uh, the, I'm really attracted to the eyesight part of that eagle thing because yeah. you know, they've got amazing eyesight and I've got terrible eyesight. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> no. I feel that. Yeah, I love to fly. I'd le- I think the feeling of flying is just fantastic. And, yeah. Uh, that sort of thing, but uh, yeah, how do you get, you get an eagle? That's a good point. That's, That's a good really point. good answer. I like that. I've never we haven't had anybody say that in the times mm-hmm. we've asked that question ever. It's pretty good. So, do you collect anything? <laughs> uh, my wife would say motorcycles. Motorcycles. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, at one point I collected tops, like spinning tops, mm-hmm. like antique spinning tops, cool brass ones, and things that that um, were really fun. But, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, I just kind of got out of it. My dad's an avid collector of uh, these these uh, Japanese tin mm-hmm. uh, sports cars okay. uh, that are antiques, and, and he's got an amazing collection. But I, I don't really have the collection gene in the same way that he does. Well, what's your you know? favorite motorcycle, then? Mm, I ride, um, I like, like off-road motorcycles. Whatever and, you like. Uh, KTM is okay. the brand of choice. Cool. Yeah. I have no idea what that means, but yeah. it sounds really it's awesome. Austrian off-road motorcycle <laughs> brand, yeah. 
All right. That, which so. does not sponsor this podcast, by the no. way. No. <laughs> yeah, thanks for throwing that in. Yeah. yeah neither does Subway. <laughs> We're just asking questions, y'all. Um, so what is your favorite childhood memory? Mm. Riding bikes uh, in the woods, um, making trails. We used to make trails in the woods all the time. Yeah. And um, that was really fun. And, and you know, we thought, it was, we thought that stuff was epic. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> to this day, I can think, I can visualize how the trails went in certain pieces of woods around our house. That's so cool. Laying in the creek, building little boats out of stuff, and, and making the all that stuff in the backyard. Absolutely love being outside, and I still do. Yeah. We, I think we all three are like that. I mean, I grew up catching crawdads and mm-hmm. minnows and salamanders and all sorts of stuff yeah. and being in the woods. I mean, mm-hmm. and my bike. And yeah. it was kind of like when the sun began to go down, mm-hmm. your butt better be on the front porch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want to have my dad whistle. If he was whistling, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Like what you're hearing so far? Well, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button right now. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. And we greatly appreciate your support. So let's get back to the show. As always, we strive for candid, open, and sometimes even humorous conversations here on Impact Stigma. So please remember, this podcast is never intended to be a substitute for professional advice, formal diagnosis, or treatment for mental and behavioral health issues. If you need further assistance or have questions, please visit the Frontier Health website at FrontierHealth.org for more information. If you, your child, or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, or experiencing a mental health crisis, you now can dial 988 and you'll be able to speak with a crisis specialist right away or go to your nearest emergency room. All right, guys, welcome back. So, Dr. Pack, can you share with our Impact Stigma listeners, you know, a little more about what you do at East Tennessee State University? Sure, yeah. I've got a couple of different roles that I have. I've directed a couple of different research operations. Uh-huh. One of those is focused on addictions, and that one is, in, in particular, that one has um, a lot of community engagement. Right. And so I've um, been doing that for quite a long time, and, and we have a lot of great partners in the region. And if I started to list them right now, it would be just embarrassing when I forgot to have someone. But uh, we'll, I will call out Frontier Health, uh, main sure. and tremendous collaborator for us. Uh, in particular, Christy Hammonds and I are working closely together mm-hmm. on some recovery ecosystem work, but uh, that's sort of part of my job. And part of my job is as a professor, I, I teach uh, some doctoral students um, the science of how to do public health, how to get people to adopt public health practices that are evidence-based. And uh, that's uh, something I'll never give up. It's a tremendous, um, tremendously rewarding thing. And then the third thing is as an administrator at the university level, I kind of have some, have a hand in some, in some different strategic initiatives one that relates, I think, to this group is uh, we're trying to better trauma-inform the campus and try and engage in some training with our partners at the uh, ETSU Ballot Health uh, Strong Brain Institute, uh, trying to engage with them in how to make everyone more trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. And That's we're start, starting at the top and, and, uh, and going all the way through the university. And that has been amazing to see those resources come to fruition and, and sort of the academic side of the trauma-informed, right, and bring it to bear, like on the ground, is, is really rewarding. And there's some great leadership there from some, the psychology department, Wally Dixon, and his whole, his whole crew. We have heard from so many of our guests this season about how their lives have been dramatically impacted since spring of 2020. Mm-hmm. 
So from the challenge that we all face from the pandemic, and then there's like political issues that followed and followed that, and then we saw financial challenges of a recession coming on. So we know burnout is real, and with the added increase in stress in our lives, we all kind of feel the toll that has taken. So would you just share how the last few years has affected you both personally and professionally? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I had professionally, objectively professionally, COVID, first couple of COVID years were actually not bad. Got a couple of big grants, um, you know, move in, got a couple of research collaborations going. We were able to use the, the newfound Zoom Mm-hmm. Uh, capability and even though we've been using it for a while we we really leverage that to to create new partnerships with other universities and and that was actually really valuable and it's paid off in in earnest personally it was trying right i mean mm-hmm. and there's all kinds of you know we were bored and we were stressed and yeah. uncertainty leads to a lot of um a lot of negative behaviors but honestly kind of some of that time professionally to engage in more um, professional development and things of that nature and um, and actually pay dividends down the road and I think also especially the collaborations that we developed. So what were some of the ways you used your resiliency and your mindfulness practices to help you overcome those challenges? Hmm. Well I, I think I really actually started using mindfulness meditation practices and breathing techniques during COVID. It was um it was actually, you know, being at home, having to, you know, <laughs> fill that time, also having the flexibility, uh, and also just the back-to-back Zooms. Um, right. That was kind of crazy. And so I had always been interested in meditation, mindfulness meditation, that practice, the use of breath work and things of that nature to, to really improve uh, my mindset and and state and and uh, began to actually use that flexibility of that time to practice that and it was uh, you know going youtube and right you, know, you download a couple of apps and whatever and uh or listen to a couple of podcasts and get some good techniques that way i actually really started using it during covid and um and <laughs> honestly today uh at lunch took a few minutes to to you know, just really kind of ground myself and what was going on, and and be thoughtful for five minutes uh, about my breathing and what was happening because I had a lot going on today. Yeah, and so it's been it's actually stuck for me. Mm-hmm. That's really good. I need to work on that. I've been thinking about it, so thank you for sharing that. So one of your biggest areas of focus is with the opioid epidemic and addiction throughout Appalachia. So mm-hmm. can you share with our family listeners what you actually do for our community? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think of the Addiction Science Center as a neutral convener. And what, what we do as a neutral convener is we bring together key partners in the region uh, to share best practices, to find out what they have going on, to see if we can't support them, find out if we can make a connection with some other institution in the region. One of the tangible things is we've been hosting this monthly working group for over 11 years now. Uh, we got together once a month for 11 years. Uh, we used to do it in person. Now we do it in sort of a hybrid fashion. But mm-hmm. just whoever needs to be there from on second Tuesdays from 4 to 5.30, we get to know them, find out what they have going on, share some uh, ideas about what they might do to make connections with other agencies. And uh, out of that has come more than 25 new projects 
over mountain recovery came out of that awesome. kind of uh, environment. Yeah. Uh, we spearheaded other working groups that uh, also focused on more uh, specific issues, a lot of grant proposals, a lot of funded grants, and a lot of partnerships. So that steady, uh, we're going to do this. It doesn't cost anything. Let's convene everybody. Let's get everybody together. Let's find out what's going on. That allowed us to build partnerships that then led to other new cool things. And it's something that I had never, previously in my career, I had never taken the time to do that to my detriment and to the, you know, to the work's detriment, actually. Right. So, uh, yeah, so we, we're grounded in that, that community um, health kind of paradigm. But, yeah, that's one of the things that so, I do. So you mentioned Over Mountain Recovery a few times. Can you give our listeners kind of a, a quick bio of sure. Over Mountain Recovery? Yeah, we had we just had a board meeting today. Yeah, uh, so that's great. Uh, so Overmount Recovery is a nonprofit addiction treatment operation, and it's really for folks with opioid use disorders. An opioid treatment program, or an OTP. And what we do there is we have outpatient um, methadone and buprenorphine, uh, naltrexone, and sublocade services, and those are all forms of uh, medications that are used to treat opioid use disorder. And it's a nonprofit. It's owned by ETSU and Ballad in a 50-50 partnership. We also uh, partner with Frontier Health, uh, who staffs all of our counseling services. Over there, were immediately, we, <laughs> when we were opening at Overmountain, we, we have what we call the three-legged stool. And so we would take a, <laughs> a senior leader from um, Frontier, uh, Dr. Jesse at the time, and a senior leader from Ballad, who was uh, spearheading on the behavioral health side at the time, and, and – uh, Lindy White and and I, we would all go and do the rounds <laughs> as a three-legged <laughs> stool. But there you go. Um, we have uh, over 550 patients at this point. Mm-hmm. Those folks are getting evidence-based addiction treatment here in Northeast Tennessee and um, delighted to be able to provide the service because, it, I mean, it's essential. That's the gold standard for right. how people, not everyone, right, but, but many people uh, gain access to um, uh, their recovery journey. So, yeah. Uh, we have all kinds of services there. We serve all different kinds for all different That's right. people that are struggling through that. For That's sure. right. So I, I like the fact that we're talking about this because I personally think that it's really important that we open that door for that conversation. So mm-hmm. there's not a stigma around, oh, well, you're taking another drug. I used to hear that all the time. And it oh, just, yeah. It's not fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, it just it makes them feel like they shouldn't go ask for help. Exactly. So Exactly. And so... How has the COVID-19 pandemic and the challenges from the last few years affected addiction rates and the availability of resources for those in need? Oh, my gosh. You know, there's a lot of focus on the opioid problem yeah. and prior to COVID. And correctly, you know, we shifted our focus to COVID uh, and uh, took up all the oxygen for a little while. And the whole opioid and other SGD substance use sort of problem really kind of went by the wayside for a bit it exacerbated the problem tremendously. I can't and imagine. What yeah. happened? what happened was massive increases in fatal overdoses, uh, non-fatal overdoses as well, but fatal overdoses uh, related to both opioids and stimulants. Uh, stimulants yeah. came on strong. A lot of this is driven by cartels, but the fentanyl, the illicitly manufactured fentanyl, uh, methamphetamine, uh, and, the, and all that being driven by the cartels uh, really was expanded rapidly during the time of COVID. And, uh, and then folks were at home, and they yeah. were using by themselves, and they may have also been um, feeling more 
alone and, and depressed, et cetera. And, and that exacerbated uses, you know, and as well as for alcohol use. And so we just had a tremendous uh, spike in substance use disorder related problems during COVID. And with us being kind of the, I don't know, what, what do we call it for Appalachia there? It's a huge deal here. Huge. Huge. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can't imagine what that was like, uh, you know, somebody on the front, front line dealing yeah. with that all the time. So, you know, it, at Overmountain, we adapted fairly quickly and did some things that they were, they were legally allowed to do uh, because that is a highly regulated facility. But uh, at Overmountain, we were able to adapt quickly and, and help make sure that people had continuation of care right. during that time. And it, it worked. But that's a challenge. Like if someone is using substance, is using medications for their substance use disorder and they need access to that and they don't have it, it can trigger relapse. Absolutely. And that's, um, uh, so we had to make sure that that was a continuation of care was a thing. I'm certain that that happened also at Frontier. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It did. So what are some of the current treatments and approaches being used to address addiction, and how are they used, and how effective? Yeah, so it's a great question. There are all kinds of different, related to COVID, just for another second, one of the one of the positives, I think, is that we really expanded access to telehealth right. services. And telehealth, you know, <laughs> but necessity breeds invention right and so what we did the larger community did during that time was really uh, make clever use of things like apps and electronic access to uh, telehealth services and telecounseling so those are very useful mm -hmm. tools and there's a lot of other tools that are more specific for contingency management which is a technique to help people keep people engaged in treatment a lot of those tools are really coming to the fore at this point. Uh, I'm really excited about that. There's going to be a technological wave that really supports people in recovery. Recovery uh, supporting data platforms and apps on your phone, mm -hmm. that, that sort of thing. It's going to be really cool. But those things are being proven and test, tested and proven right now. But just for, for general, like opioid use disorder, you know, medications are considered to be the gold standard to help people prevent relapse because of the problem of, you know, whenever your body begins to go into withdrawal from addictive right. substances, right, you can have a lot of cravings. And and purpose of medications is to help people stave away the cravings and also allow for them to get access to counseling and other services mm -hmm. so they can think more clearly and then begin to build those neural pathways in a, in a way that, you know, changes their thinking over time and, and helps them adapt uh, better coping styles and then helps them get more control of their life. And then that helps them get back into the employment situation and maybe uh, helps change their family uh, dynamics positively, et cetera. So that's, that's the purpose of medications. It's not to trade one drug for another. I um, hate when I hear it, that. Well, it's, 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 it I mean, doesn't, I understand, I understand yeah. where there's like the not understanding for people, but that's what we're here talking about right now, yeah, right? Exactly, so, exactly. Know, it's just a big deal. I, I mean, I have a friend that have, you know, have had to use that as sure. tools, and it's just, it's a tool. If it's used correctly, it can help you get from one place to another. It's not a quick, quick fix. It's not a cure. It's a tool to help you get, change who you, like change the dynamic in the direction of your life, like you said. Yeah, exactly, and, and it's one of the things, and, yeah. and, it's, and it's not for everybody. Right. There are some people that, that do well without it, and that's totally fine. And in fact, it's awesome. But, sure. you know, I'm, I'm for all paths to recovery. Recovery period, yeah, right? That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I know that it would be so much easier, like we said, just to, you know, talk about addiction and recovery. If we could just get past the stigma, that would be so great, you know. 
we've done a lot. I know Frontier's done a lot. I know there's so many resources, like you said, that have done a lot. We've come a long way, but we aren't there yet. We hear that a lot too. So what are some of the common misconceptions and stigmas surrounding addiction and recovery that you're still seeing within the communities you serve? Among people that I'm around a lot, it is sometimes jarring to hear them say things like, you know, that person's hopeless or, mm-hmm. right, that person with that uh, situation, they're, how are they ever going to get out of that situation? They're under a bridge or whatever, and they're not going to be able to, why don't they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps? And I'm like, really? You know, like, how, how long have you known me? <laughs> we, we still have to talk about this. But that, um, I think there's just a tremendous amount of stigma related to substance use disorder as, as if it's a moral failing. And it's not something that's driven by, you know, the environment and the trauma that people have suffered as as kids and, you know, their homes and in other situations or their impoverished situation or their intergenerational aspects of their, of uh, substance use disorder in their homes. And so what I would encourage people to do is to try to think about this as a more complex thing than just a good or bad or a, or it's not a two-by-two two table even. This is a yeah. multi-dimensional um, deal. And what we have to do is we have to acknowledge that complexity. We have to think through um, those things from an individual perspective, but also we have to bring to the region uh, things that are going to support the whole community. Yeah. The community's made up of individuals, and everybody's got a shot at recovery. I mean, I think it starts with um, it starts with children too and schools and families right I mean my mom is very okay with me talking about it but while she's not a not an opioid she doesn't have substance use disorder but she was an alcoholic Mm -hmm. and she um is 20 years clean and I'm very proud of her but there was like this thing that even as children I had to go through okay my mom does love me regardless it's Mm not I I would always say well why don't you just quit if you love me you would quit Mm -hmm. you know or why can't you just stop I don't understand so I'm really proud of the way we as a community have changed that. Um, we got, like we like I said, there's a long way to go, but we're doing it, and I'm really thankful for people like you. So thank you. Well, I'm thankful for people like you too, <laughs> both of you guys. And you're doing oh. great work, and Frontier's doing great work. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. So, so can you share with our listeners why it's important to switch the conversation from talking about addiction to recovery? Yeah, it's because most people recover. Yeah. This is crazy. Like people don't know this, but. The majority of people with substance use disorder actually recover from substance use disorder. In fact, there's about 30 million Americans living in recovery from substance use disorder. That's great. Isn't that crazy? And, no. and I'm really happy to hear that because I didn't know that. So yeah. roughly 10%. Should, know, should yeah, not know that. Roughly 10%. That's great. Yeah. That's right. That's right. 9 to 11% is the estimate. Yeah. So right on 10%. And, uh, you know, it's crazy that that's not the story. The I story know. is like, uh, you know, that person's a got a moral failing or whatever right. no this is this is a medical condition and we need to speak about it in terms of medical terms and we need to think about it in terms of medical and psychiatric terms and and we need to be supporting people so that they can gain access to resources that will support them in their journey and it's also complicated because <laughs> addiction comes with issues related to trust it can be financially draining and that also has implications for sometimes for your relationships and, and so on. And so there's all kinds of complexity to this that we have to acknowledge. But on balance, most people can and do recover. Many of them recover really well, and they'll take on you know this as their journey. I think about certified peer recovery specialists, for example, and the importance of CPRS 
and peer recovery support services in general. I, just the value of that live perspective and then having that, you know, uh, those folks wa- walking alongside those who are seeking recovery, I just think it's awesome. Yeah, those are people living in excellent recovery. And it's right. awesome. It's that connection. It creates a connection. So that person yep. says, okay, I'm not alone. Right. And I can have my voice heard. And my story's not so different than somebody else's because I think that was something that my mom shared was when she got into recovery and shared her story with others. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. She was like, I really thought I was all by myself. Yeah. I thought my story, I thought I was broken and messed up and never fixable. And I was just this terrible person. And I realized I have a disease and there's other people like me and their stories are very similar and I'm not alone. That's great. And she just, she did go to uh, inpatient and she came back and she's been clean for 20 years. So I'm really proud of her. And it it is, you're right. It is people can recover and they do. And I I love talking about it from that that vantage point. I want to talk about it for a second. If you don't mind, before we go to the next question, I'm going to talk about what is recovery anyway? Right. What do we mean when we say recovery? Mm-hmm. And I've got this definition that I've been using. Um, it's a, uh, it's not mine, but it's a definition that I've, I've adopted, which is recovery is an individualized, intentional, dynamic, and relational process involving sustained efforts to improve wellness. I love that. So it's a lot in there, right? But yeah. it's intentional. It's individual, mm-hmm. right? It's intentional, dynamic, and relational. And that is, you know, that person seeking, engaging in that process to improve their wellness, sustained wellness. And that's really what it is. It's much more complex than this or that, right? Yeah. It's just, it's not a binary thing. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. All right. So what are some steps that individuals, our communities, and the local media can take to help shift that conversation and promote recovery throughout this region? You can start by assuming, start by imagining the the person about whom you're speaking is a person that's related to you and think of them as a person first, you know, yeah. and think of them as, as uh, someone that will be living in recovery at some point in the future and think about them from the perspective of what what can I do to begin to support them? You know, like I say, it does come with baggage, but and you got to set up some boundaries, and occasionally those boundaries can lead to accountability that helps people think about their recovery journey. Right? It helps yeah. people, triggers people into moving into their recovery journey. But I, I think that's probably the most important thing for everyone is to think through, like, before you're talking about somebody and uh, with an addiction issue, think through like um, how would that feel if somebody was talking about your loved one. Right, and That's then good. just you know start there. There's a great resource um, from the Recovery Research Institute uh, out of Harvard. It's called the Addictionary. Have you guys ever seen this? No, no, but you talked about it. I oh, think. it's fantastic. Yeah, it's the the Addictionary, like it's like dictionary with the two letters A D in front of it. Gotcha. Dictionary. Um, for every one of the terms in the dictionary, uh, there's a, a rationale for why that that uh, term might be stigmatizing and for use in conversation and the research below it that backs that up. That's great. <laughs> because there's some amazing research on, on this topic. And uh, I can tell you a little bit about it if you want to know. Of course we do. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 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 All right. So, um, so in this one study, I think it was 314 individuals. They referred to, they, they randomized people into two groups and then they, had a, a number of questions that they had 
the respondents react to and, you know, they wanted to know about who was likely to benefit from treatment, who was going to benefit from punishment, who was socially threatening, things of that nature. And if they said at the beginning, if the, if the, the, the root part of the question referred to that individual as a substance abuser, right, versus the other condition was having a person having substance use disorder, right, the people had, were in the condition related to substance abuser, they felt that they were way less likely to benefit from treatment, that they were le- way less likely um, wow. to um, so words actually just... come around unless they were punished, right? Wow. And so words really matter. Yeah. And, and they, they actually felt like they were more socially threatening, right? Yeah. And it's the same condition, Yeah. but it just that, that just prompted people to think about those individuals in a certain way. And so... Yeah. I think it's important to recognize that the Recovery Research Institute has done a great job of unpacking some of this research and put, and putting out onto their website a bunch of infographics and things of that nature that can really help you and, and others. Well, uh, we'll see what we can do. I mean, I'm always, Josh and I are both like, yeah, if we can find a good link and put yeah. links on there. Mm-hmm. So when people click on it, they see it in the notes. And they can, yep. They'll have some information, and they can just dig into it deeper. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think that's it's, always really it's helpful. A, it's a good resource. So since we're talking about language, what is the difference between using first-person language and using labels or stereotypes to describe individuals with addiction? You know, um, person first is a, is a, it's challenging, yeah. right? Um, I sort of came up <laughs> working on this where an addict was a very common thing to say, right? And, mm-hmm. and um and I've even published things that, that uh, use what is now known to be very clearly stigmatizing language, and, and it, it, it can be challenging. But the rule of thumb is to think about it as a loved one and to d- just start with a person who is mm-hmm. first because it honors the individual, right? It, and it helps us think about like this as an individual, this person, and then it pro- that helps us remember to, med- to use medical sort of terminology right. and so I, I always uh, coach people uh, let's not talk about it as a, as a person with addiction necessarily let's talk about someone who has a substance use disorder um, now not that the word addiction is necessarily stigmatizing it's a condition addiction is but addict is stigmatizing yeah. and when someone's referred to as an addict versus a person with substance use disorder they that may very well um, minim- diminish in some way their um, they're feeling about how successful they're going to be in treatment whenever mm-hmm. they try to access it. Right. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of value, I think, in just being thoughtful about honoring the individual and then trying to be medically accurate. Right. I have a list of 10 different things that I can share with you guys, uh, on, on, um, how to talk, write and report on addiction. I dug this up. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you my question, and I bet that will go along with what you're going to. Okay. Your answer. How about that? So, how does using person first language fit into a larger effort to destigmatize addiction and promote recovery? Do you think that might go along with that? Yeah, sure. I I, I do think it'll go along with it. I think um, a larger effort is we got to keep talking about this. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we need to be talking about it on scale level platforms. Right. I agree. And so like when we, you and I might have a conversation and I might influence you, right. Or any individual, uh, to think about it in one way, but things like what you're doing here are very important. 
you've got a good audience and you're going to yeah. grow this audience. And, and, uh, I think that moving, uh, things out to that kind of scale will be very important. You know, Beth Macy, who wrote the book Dope Sick. Um, yeah, I've heard of that. Uh, Beth is a friend. She, she profiled, uh, some of the work that we did at Overmountain and at the tail end of that book. And when, uh, when she was, um, telling me about the, the TV show, the Hulu series, mm-hmm. she told me that, that the book sold a hundred thousand copies. But ten million people saw saw the Hulu series. <laughs> yeah, smiling from ear to ear because I understand. Right, yep, and right. because and people don't want to read, they just want to watch stuff. And right. she grounded it's that crazy. whole thing. She grounded that whole thing in a stigma reduction um, a thought process, yeah. and and um, she worked the the character Finnick uh, uh, is based on Stephen Lloyd, as you guys. Are probably you kidding? Know. No, no. Oh my uh, goodness! You yeah. know I haven't seen this yet. I'm watching oh. it. It's oh wow! You I'm watch it. Yeah, I'm definitely watching yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you'll notice things like um, things like when they show patients in the methadone clinic in this yeah. in this uh, particular series, this Hulu series, Dope Sick. Um, the patients in the methadone clinic look exactly like uh, somebody that's in a primary care clinic. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. they're just going for medical treatment. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that was part the of the way rationale. they're portrayed in you know in, in like fictional movies and things, it's so dramatically different than what they actually appear in person. That's right. Some people are very not okay. Yeah, sometimes that's they exactly come, right. Sometimes they come and they're really sick, but mm-hmm. the majority of people that come look like me and you. Exactly And right. they're just struggling and they need help. And yep. it's so crazy. So I really appreciate you saying that for yeah. sure. So uh, let me, let me, uh, oh, well, <laughs> I want to share this list of 10 things because there, there's some uh, some good things. I don't know if you guys want to edit this out or, or not because it's a, lot, it's a lot. I think that the world needs to hear it. It's good. Just read it and tell us okay. about it, and All we're right. good, and we'll so decide. This is, this is also from the Recovery Research Institute, but the um, uh, first one is use comparable medical terminology whenever possible. Something okay. I already covered, right? Yep. Second one is use person-first language. Third one is avoid using stigmatizing terms, and and it helps to educate yourself on what those are. And there's a whole long list of them at the dictionary, and I, I strongly suggest people go and check it out. Avoid things like uh, clean versus dirty, for example. Um, in, instead of uh, rehab, say residential treatment facility or addiction treatment facility, nice, right? Like Use that. medical medically accurate uh, terminology. Right. Instead of enabling, um, don't really think about it as enabling. Think about, like, instead that someone whose loved ones can unconsciously reinforce substance use. So being trying to be more accurate. Uh, the fourth one is share the solutions that exist, and that requires people educating themselves about those. Uh, the fifth one is provide details about those solutions. Uh, sixth one is humanize the condition. Use reliable sources, right? Yeah. Not necessarily TikTok. <laughs> right. right not necessarily the uh, web md it's not yeah. nec- you know it's just a it's just web md is probably actually way better than tiktok i'm so. joking yeah. I know. <laughs> wikipedia yeah, there right. you go sometimes uh, my jokes aren't so great sorry communicate information about the many different pathways to recovery uh and then give a bigger view right yeah. a lot of times and and we see the we see the problems through the lens from our paychecks right yeah and we need to see the larger systemic systematic kind of systems level view encourage people to use their imagination about that and how different systems work together to support people in recovery and the last one is be respectful yeah mm-hmm. i agree i want to ask this really quick because it's in my head and i feel mm-hmm. like if i don't ask it i'll forget sure and i'm sorry 
but it's important to me because so I'm the person that loved an addict or someone in in recovery. I don't I'm still working on that part. So this is the part that I feel like would be really helpful if we could talk about it. And that was I was very hurt, angry, um, disappointed. I'd so I mean, I could almost cry right now. I was so many, so many things about my mom. And now I love her. She's she's amazing. So please know that. But before I got to this point. I wasn't okay. And it was like I felt very abandoned mm-hmm. because the person in recovery sitting in front of me was not the person that I knew. So that was like this anger welled up and that was like easier for me to call her an addict. It was easier for me to say those sure. things. So how are we, how are you all helping the people that have gone through that with them so they're not just, I don't want, I don't want people that are in recovery to feel like they're in recovery by themselves. I really want their family to be pulled into it too. So their family can feel recovered as well. So how do you guys address that part? Wow. That's a great question. You know, one of the, one of the projects uh, that's forthcoming, uh, we're just getting started on it at Overmountain is a, it's done in partnership with another team out of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying to bring some family treatment resources uh, to the folks at Overmountain, the state of the art family treatment resources, which we already have, but uh, it's kind of, trying to turn that up a couple of notches but it, you know it's it's vitally important what you're talking about yeah and it's hard and, to get people to want to come yeah and and when you're when you're in that situation i've been in that situation and you're just like well and i heard the brick right episode right yeah and, and i know where you shared your story yeah. in that episode and and that really resonated with me what what is tough i think is to recognize that that person has a chance in the future. Your happiness isn't contingent on what they do. True. Right. Learn that. And, and this is a medical condition. Often the, the behavior that you're seeing is just being driven by something that's not really them. Yeah. And when they are living a life of full and excellent recovery, they're totally different and they are yeah. actually loving on you and, and sure. uh, taking care of And I can of speak to that and say, I'm yeah. very happy with the mom I have now oh, as opposed to the mom I had then. Yeah. But there are people that are in my shoes from then that never got to now. Yeah, sure. You know, right. so that was why I wanted to mention right. that. Hey, and I'll say this, you know, there's a um, 12-step recovery and, and even smart recovery and celebrate recovery, things of that nature, they're fantastic for people as they're beginning that journey. And then helping people understand the need to go and make amends yeah. with those that they've hurt. Right. Yep. And then, you know, take that full inventory and make amends and, and live in, um, in gratitude. I did a 12 step program called regeneration at Grace yeah. fellowship because I felt like I needed to go through it. And it was a big, huge thing. And I did it for a year and I was able to kind of do, get do my testimony and talk about forgiving myself and like letting go of all the things. It was a huge deal. I'm telling and you. it was so great. I was like, I'm not here for what I, I was like, well, I don't need that. I'm not that, you know, I'm not like my mom. Oh, yeah, I was in a lot of ways because, yeah. you know, it still affected me. So I was able Absolutely. to really get rid of that. It was a really big deal. I think everybody would benefit from 12-step program, uh, honestly. I mean, you know, there's no no harm in living with more gratitude and, and sure. with more respect for others yep. and for finding figuring out what your purpose is. Yep. Yeah. So what impact do you hope the widespread use of first-person uh, language will have on individuals in recovery and on society as a whole? More, better stories of excellent recovery yeah. will be impactful for the conversation. It ch- that will change the culture, I think, if we can get there. And we, and we need to think about people as, you know, as people that have value, right? And mm-hmm. that they, you know, they're, they're people that we need to be supporting because they're 
part of our larger family in right. the region, uh, citizens. And, you know, we need to care more for one another. It's, it's actually really challenging sometimes to hear what, how people think about those that are dealing with substance use disorder, particularly like yeah. um, injection drug users, yeah. for example. Nobody Inge- wakes up. Nobody is like when I'm five, when I'm ten. That's what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah, you know, right. it's not. That's not what happened. Well, but irrespective of of how they're there, they are there, right? And they're valuable individuals. Yeah. And we need to see people like that. That's part of I think our larger cultural kind of how how we are in this region. I agree. And uh, we should be kind and and uh, help people um, in that time of their their hurting. And what folks generally don't know is that when somebody's accessing syringe service programs, for example, they're way more likely to engage in recovery support services thereafter. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's a help-seeking behavior at that point. It's a step. It's a step. That's like, right. That's what you have to do. You have to, like, be okay with someone taking a different avenue. Maybe they're still using, but at least they're not on the streets using someone yeah. else's needle and doing terrible things to their body. They're trying right. to get better. They're doing something. They're doing a little step, even if it's small. It's a, it's a proactive yeah. health, health seeking, help seeking yeah. step. And so maybe it's a micro step, but you know what? A bunch a of step. micro steps can make that's up right. a step. That's and then, right. Yeah. That, that's, um, I hope, I hope for culture change, mm-hmm. you know, and not just, just a little bit. Right. I Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's one of my favorite questions to ask because I just love kind of like turning the tables a little bit. But mm-hmm. so, so on one last question, if you could step into our shoes on this podcast, what would you have asked yourself that we didn't? Uh, we didn't really talk about the opioid abatement dollars and kind of priorities for that. It's one of the, one of the things I've been working on for the past couple of years. And you know, we, we knew that there was going to be this kind of settlement. We could see the writing on the wall and, tried to get out in front of that with some recommendations and a number of other uh, groups put out their recommendations and then the money came and, and basically states are beginning to, to try to adhere to those kinds of recommendations. But you know, what exactly states are going to do, how far advanced they are. I mean, I feel very confident with what's happening in Tennessee because of, I know most of the people that are involved with how it's going to go and they're, they're very much engaged in evidence-based uh, practices. And I don't know that that's the case everywhere. I do know that there are some states that are real exemplars. So I think that's one thing. We, we knew that there was going to be some massive settlements out there, and they, they came forward. It's about $70 billion in total. Wow. Uh, that distributed around all the states and really kind of proportionate to population. I'm and, glad to hear that. Yeah. And, um, and they'll be paid out over 18 years. So... Uh, it'd be like the master settlement agreement for tobacco, but this time uh, that money can't be used by legislators to pave roads. It's got to be used for the purpose of opioid abatement, and so that's a good thing. That's but, really uh, good. Yeah, so that's forthcoming, and I gotta say, um, Christy Hammonds, uh, CEO of Frontier, has been spearheading a, an effort in the region to try to identify those priorities. We've been trying to support that effort with with our um, uh, recovery ecosystem. Uh, work. She's a brilliant uh, lady. Yeah, she really is. That's right. That's right. We're trying to support it on the data side yep. and try to identify where to put things. And yeah, there's some great work going on here. And um, I'm I'm pleased to be associated with it. I uh, really appreciate you guys uh, letting me come. We're so happy. You're yeah, here. thank you for coming. You Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming. It was a super super big honor. And thank you to all of our Impact Sigma family. We hope you enjoyed this episode a great deal. 
please do the things that Josh is going to tell you to do in a minute. But um, we just thank you for continuing to tune in. Yeah, like, share, subscribe. Follow us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Absolutely. Share with your friends, guys, because you never know who's going to need to hear this, right? So we just can't wait to spend time with you all again soon. And thank you for continuing to help us make an impact. Stigma can make mental health problems worse and even stop a person from getting the help they need. Untreated mental illness places an enormous economic and emotional burden on our communities. Economic burden alone is in the billions, and that directly affects all of us. We all play a crucial role in creating a mentally healthy community, one that is inclusive, rejects discrimination, and supports recovery. For us at Impact Stigma, this is way more than just a podcast. It is about igniting our communities, sharing our stories, and working together with listeners like you. We invite you to find out more about Impact Stigma on our website at impactstigma.com. One way you can make an impact right now is by sharing our podcast with your friends and family because you never know when something we talk about might be the reason someone you love asks for help. Mental illness is not a personal failure. We can't do this without you. So if you feel inspired to get involved, first, subscribe to this podcast. Then go visit our website at impactstigma.com. Watch the video and read about how you can become an impact maker. Thank you for listening to Impact Stigma. You're so glad you chose us. We want to thank our guests again for sharing your impactful story and doing your part to Impact Stigma. Join us next time as we enjoy some laughs and hear impactful stories. Until then, this work needs you. So go be an impact maker. Thank you and be blessed.